Welcome to episode 106 of the G2 on 5G. It's the latest inside scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 20 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend, and joining me again this week is fellow analyst Anshul Sag. Let's get started with my first topic. And news broke this week that Cisco is partnering with General Dynamics to deliver private 5G services to U.S. federal governmental aid entities and agencies. And so my question is, what are the expected outcomes? So the details are no surprise. Uh, Cisco is leveraging its private 5G as a service, which is built on its own mobile core technology and it's pretty expansive IoT portfolio. Um, I'm very familiar with Cisco's offer in that it's leveraging third parties for, for various radios. And um, you know, it's no, it's no surprise that General Dynamics is a huge contractor to the federal government. So I believe this potentially puts uh, Cisco in a very you know, great light with respect to all the governmental agencies that are evaluating private 5G networks. You and I have spoken about different deployments within the federal government. I, I believe on one podcast, we talked about a Marine Corps deployment, which involved sort of digitizing their logistical operations. And so from my perspective, I think it's a smart move. I mean, General Dynamics has the footprint they're on GSA contracts. Um, certainly Cisco probably is as well, but I think it's sort of a marriage of, uh, of two great companies, but would love to get your perspective. Yeah, I mean, General Dynamics is probably one of the biggest defense contractors out there. Um, so I think, you know, they're just one of many that are trying to compete for these different contracts uh, with the federal government. Um, you know, I, I don't know, was this, was this explicitly stated for any specific departments? Or is this broadly like a, uh, you know, a GA thing? It's very broad. So there weren't really any specific, uh, you know, points to, you know, particular government agencies, but certainly in the military, you know, I've talked about that on prior podcasts. The military sees obvious applications with 5G when you look at the latency for drone support and that sort of thing. But no, it, it, it appears to be a very sort of broad partnership at this point. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Well, let's move to your first topic. And um, you want to talk about um, some delays with Apple's 5G modems. Yeah. So um, there was a rumor that came out um, from one of the more famous, uh, you know, analysts out there that covers Apple supply chain. Um, you might have heard of him. His name is Ming-Chi Kuo. Mm -hmm. um, and generally, his rumors tend to be accurate, um, you know, whether or not you agree with him or not. Um, but what was interesting is um, this, you know, tweet that, you know, he said that the, you know, Apple might be delaying its 5G modem was related to a design failure. Um, but a couple of days later, other people pointed out that maybe it's not a design failure, but in fact, it could be a consequence of Apple losing its patent dispute with Qualcomm. Mm -hmm. um, because they have been um, petitioning the Supreme Court to hear their case, um, they actually managed to appeal and lose enough times that they got all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, and they lost that as well. The Supreme Court would not hear their case. Um, and within a day, Ming-Chi's, uh, uh, you know, his article came out or his tweet, I guess. And that to me indicates that maybe it was similar uh, in the um, potential impact but maybe, you know, it, it sounded a little bit less drastic 
um, in the way that it was communicated. But uh, either way, um, I would consider this a failure because um, if you lose a, a patent, if your design is based on a patent dispute um, or losing one uh, or winning one, um, you know, it's probably not a good design in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So I think that if you uh, take that into account, it, it's pretty important to uh, really think about that. And that's why I think that uh, whatever's happening, you know, Apple's probably going to be pushing their modem out another year or two. Yeah. Um, they do have an existing agreement with Qualcomm for patents. I believe it was a five plus two year or, or a four plus two year, somewhere between the six or seven year horizon. Yeah. Um, and they've already been at it for three years. So, you know, they're going to have to probably sign another agreement with Qualcomm um, on the patent side. And I'm sure they're not going to be thrilled about it, which is honestly the purpose of their entire original legal spat with Qualcomm. Um, yeah. They just don't like Qualcomm's terms, um, even though everybody else was perfectly fine with them. Um, and even Apple was up until a certain point. So um, yeah. it's a very odd situation. Um, you know, a lot of people didn't even know that Apple was still fighting Qualcomm patents, even mm -hmm. though they had already signed a, uh, you know, a truce of sorts with their, with their uh, settlement. Um, but this kind of puts a nail in the coffin in that at this point. And I think that, you know, Apple's probably going to have to go back to the drawing board in terms of um, their design or um, their uh, agreements with Qualcomm. Cause you know, I, I think long-term Apple wants to put a 5G modem in everything right. and Qualcomm can, gets to get a, uh, you know, a, a small royalty out of every single device Apple makes, you know, that's not ideal for Apple's bottom line. Right. You know, yeah, the bottom line is it affects the overall cost of producing an iPad that's enabled with cellular technology or an iPhone. So, yeah. Or a Mac, and, if that yeah, happens. Exactly, exactly. And watch. Yeah, and it's interesting. So our, our chief principal analyst and CEO, Patrick Moorhead, he's written numerous articles on Forbes calling it the clown show. And I, I think I saw a tweet from Pat this week as well there. But yeah, this likely sets Apple back, you know, considerably to your point. And it's just going to build more cost. But hey, you know, Apple's a premium product. They can probably, uh, you know, buffet that, you know, in the short term. And but, you know, Apple's philosophy is they want to design everything, right? The silicon, you know, everything. Yep. So this is probably pretty, uh, you know, pretty heartfelt on, on their part. But Hey, you know, Qualcomm, you know, they've got great technology and uh, they continue to be a leader within, um, you know, the device space. So it'll be interesting to see. But uh, yeah, it's, it seems like, you know, finally that, that final nail was put in the coffin on, on this, uh, this dispute. And uh, yeah, we'll just have to see what happens with Apple long term. But let's go to my second topic this week. And my question is, what the, what's the deal with Dish's 5G network performance and its inconsistencies? So it's been pretty um, widely publicized that uh, Dave Mayo, who is the chief executive in charge of building um, DISH's 5G network, the chief network officer, uh, acknowledges that DISH is well aware of the inconsistent performance that's been pointed out um, from uh, recent reports from PC Magazine, as well as Signals Research Group. And what Mayo is pointing to is their implementation of voiceover new radio. And uh, we talked about this on our prior podcast with T-Mobile's implementation. I believe, Anshul, you, you spoke to that. So, you know, they're, basically they're, they're admitting, Dish is admitting that, hey, you know, voiceover NR is not easy, nor was Volti, voiceover LTE when it was done, you know, several years ago. 
And so that's sort of what they're pointing to. Um, really, but it was interesting in the articles that I've uh, read, there's been sort of no, you know, sort of resolution from, from DISH on when they're going to be able to resolve this. And, you know, we've reported in the past, you know, they, they were some very behind on getting to their coverage goals. We had Sean on last week and he spoke to some of his insights on, you know, the reality of all of that, but what's your perspective? I, I think it's interesting. I think I was, you know, I was reading uh, Mike Daniels coverage of it yeah. uh, over at Light Reading. And I, I thought it was interesting because it sounds like it's uh, a combination of, um, you know, timers in the core, radio software, uh, and other optimizations. And, and it looks like they've just got a lot of problems they have to solve, yeah. almost <laughs> as if their network wasn't really ready for launch. Um, I think they probably would have been a lot better off if they had waited to launch, you know, um, but they, you know, were trying to hit a date. So I think that's something to consider is it's probably not a finished network and there's going to be a lot of problems probably that they're going to have to work through in the next six to 12 months. Yeah. There's also, you know, band 70, uh, which should also improve coverage and, and network performance. So I think this is a very, you know, a very early nascent network that's mm -hmm. probably got another year or two of evolving until I think anybody can really make a good assessment of what its actual state is. Right. It's kind of like, you know, if you look at Verizon and AT&T's 5G networks right now, they're incomplete. Um, so I think that when you consider that the big guys are also not really fully built out right. and that their 5G networks still have a lot of work to do. Uh, it's not really a shock or a surprise that Dish would also have a lot of work to do. I just think those issues that Sprint is, I mean, that Dish is having are more experiential. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's also because they're taking bigger risks and adopting newer technologies in an attempt to try to, you know, catch up with the, the bigger guys. Yeah. No, I think your insights are spot on. Uh, they are building a greenfield network. Um, they're new at it. And to your point, they're leaning heavily into things like OpenRAN and, and VRAN and cloud native architectures, which the Verizons and AT&Ts and T-Mobiles are leaning into, but to a lesser extent. And so um, a lot of this hasn't quite coalesced. And you know, with all this disaggregated infrastructure that DISH is deploying, there are integration challenges with that. And we've seen that. We've you and I have spoken about Rakuten in the past. They've been sort of the the poster child for this when they built their LTE network in Japan and um, and deploying uh, as they continue to deploy their 5G network as well. Um, this isn't easy stuff. I mean, it's it seems agile and it seems you know from a from a capex and opex perspective very disruptive, but it's certainly not easy. And it's certainly building a, a greenfield network from the ground up. Um, there are additional challenges there. And I totally agree with you. I think it's also, uh, DISH just doesn't have the bench and the experience, although they have hired professionals and leadership from other mobile network operators and infrastructure providers, but um, there is a learning curve. So it'll be interesting to see how this, this rolls out. And this sort of plays back into some of the comments that, um, that Sean Kinney, who was our guest last week for the editor-in-chief at RCR Wireless was speaking to as well. So for our viewers and listeners, if you didn't catch last week's um, episode, I would highly encourage you to do that. But with that, let's go to your second topic. And you want to talk about SES launch and C-band. 
Yeah, so SES is a satellite communications company, um, and they launched a, uh, a satellite called SES-22. Yeah. Um, and this satellite was designed to allow the company to clear more C-band spectrum, um, specifically uh, the higher band spectrum that hadn't yet been cleared. Um, their deadline to clear that is December of 2023. But um, they are launching this new satellite. I think they launched it yesterday mm -hmm. uh, successfully uh, on SpaceX uh, from Cape Canaveral. And basically this, this will help them to um, clear the spectrum and, and allow Verizon and AT&T and T-Mobile to take advantage of that spectrum. Yeah. Um, and they will also get paid by doing this faster. Um, I think Verizon set, paid them extra money um, to accelerate their, their, their clearing of that spectrum. But even ignoring Verizon, um, they will be making $4 billion on clearing the spectrum. Holy moly. That's a lot and, of clams. <laughs> and, um, you know, they also were on this spectrum for a very long time. So um, I think between them and Intelsat, there's something like $9 billion to be made on clearing. Oh, wow. um, so, you know, I mean, these are the satellite companies that were using the spectrum. And now they're yeah. moving to the upper band of C-band. Uh, I think they, they have like 100 megahertz up there. And then there's like a 20 megahertz guard band. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then there's, you know, the, 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 the planes above that. So, yeah. um, which we've, ex, you know, extensively covered. We, but we beat that horse to death. I know, I know. I'm sure everybody's <laughs> tired of hearing um, But yes, they're, they're going to actually launch a total of five satellites um, to make the second phase of clearing happen. Um, and this, this launch carries one satellite. Yeah. Uh, while there are two more launches later this year that will carry two each. Uh, and this will give SES enough capacity to support their customers um, moving forward um, into the higher frequencies aligned with the new satellites. So that, that's yeah. basically it. They're, they're kind of just moving along, uh, you know, quickly to ensure that the spectrum is cleared so that, you know, the, the 5G operators can use all these large swaths of spectrum that they've mm -hmm. paid for. Yeah, we remember we talked about, didn't we talk about SpaceX or Starlink and their, their contention on the last um, episode or one of the last episodes about? Yes, the, so yeah. we actually did talk about that. There is an update. I didn't include that as one of my topics, okay. but since you brought it up, there you um, it, it, they actually sent an email to Starlink customers having them also uh, pester uh, the FCC not to <laughs> allow 12 gigahertz to be used for 5G. Oh my gosh. That's so crazy. That, that's also what's happening this week on, on the satellite side. But um, that, that pretty much wraps my uh, second topic for this week. Cool. Yeah. And it's it's SES, not SES launch. Like like I said, I, I thought SES launch sounded cooler for their names. <laughs> they're a satellite they company. themselves to that. Yeah. No kidding. So well, let's talk about my third and final topic. And I'm gonna talk about Verizon. And they recently revealed a 5G connected police cruiser prototype. And I think it's kind of cool because there's sort of a parallel to Blade Runner 2049. I'm a huge Blade Runner fan, love the original. 2049 was pretty good, but I'll get to that point in a minute. So this is actually at what was uh, called the National Sheriff's Association Annual Conference. So. 
Verizon um, unveiled a modified, I believe it was a Chevy Tahoe, okay. and it's packed with a lot of gear, much more so than, than, than typical police cruisers. So it's designed to support 4G LTE, 5G, and 5G connectivity for mission-critical push-to-talk, general mobile radio service, and land mobile radio. And it's got a pretty cool um, an acronym. So it's a, they call the, the prototype the Mobile Utility Technology Transport, or MUT for short. And it's going to be leveraging um, millimeter wave and C-band. So obviously millimeter wave has been the priority from a deployment standpoint for Verizon and its 5G network. And it's lighting up C-band as we've spoken to you on, on prior podcasts. But what I really think is cool about um, the prototype is that there's actually um, a design that would allow a drone to deploy from the cruiser. And uh, that would enable obviously first responders on the scene to assist in emergencies. We've seen drone deployment from the likes of Verizon's and AT&T's of the world um, with respect to tornado and hurricane disaster recovery efforts, um, fallen buildings like you know that, that unfortunate um, incident in Florida with that building collapse. But yeah, I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of uh, the, uh, the 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 car on Blade Runner twenty forty nine, where the the, the drone kind of came out and followed followed uh, Ryan Gosling's character uh, in different scenes there. But I think it's super cool. Um, you know, I I've been critical of Verizon in the past, but one thing that they're that I think they've done a masterful job with is really focused on uh, very specific, discrete five G use cases. Uh, they're they're currencies that you know they they launched a couple of years ago at a CES show um, and they continue to sort of demonstrate that so I think this is a pretty innovative prototype that would support what they're doing you know with, with millimeter wave but more importantly with c-band because that mid-band spectrum is going to provide you know that that optimal balance of uh, propagation and performance but would love for you to weigh in on this if you have any if you know insights or comments um it does sound a little high tech, but it also sounds a little dystopian. Yeah. Um, <laughs> especially if we're talking Blade Runner, right? Right. <laughs> uh, I think that um, there is a place for drones um, in, in you know, first responders and, and um, you know, helping police and things like that. Yeah. But I also think that it's, you know, it, it could potentially create weird scenarios where if your neighbor calls the police and they deploy it, a vehicle with a drone and you're flying your drone just for any reason, right. you could potentially be become a criminal because you're not allowed to fly a drone when there's a, you know, when there's a, a drone from uh, first responders in the area. So, right. um, you know, that introduces an entirely other complication to the, the whole situation around drones mm -hmm. uh, and surveillance and, you know, like, like, okay, let's say they have a drone. Are they allowed to fly the drone around your house once they pull up? Right. Because, you know, that's, you know, them, they, they're they potentially encumbering on your property. So that's like a, yeah. do they need a warrant for that? It, it, it introduces so many different potential uh, legal questions that uh, I think it might be a little bit too early for drones being built into uh, squad cars. Yeah, no, I hear you. And, um, you know, the privacy concerns around that and, you know, all that sort of thing. But I, I'm, I'm a sci-fi geek. I just thought that was kind of cool. But uh, I think I think you're absolutely right. So it, it's super early. You know, I it's sort of a, a tangential note. Um, there's a company, and I believe it's called Axion, if I'm not mistaken. They do 
a lot of body cam and they do a lot of technology integration for law it's enforcement. Taser. What's that? They renamed themselves from being Taser. Oh, that's right. That's right. Well, they do it's, drones, drone it's, drones and they also do yeah, you know, it's VR training too. Yeah, what's interesting, I read an article is right after the Uvalde shootings and um, their CEO announced um, a platform that you know involves drone technology for policing campuses. And it, it, it created a lot of controversy, right? And I think it's very similar to sort of your insights and concerns here with this, with this prototype, this proof of concept. Certainly this could move forward, you know, absent of you know, any sort of drone component. But um, I think it just demonstrates, you know, the power of 5G. I'll also mention with, with this MUT platform, um, you know, it, the prototype calls for two routers versus one, or what's typically just sort of a MiFi hotspot uh, in a cruiser. And, um, and it also includes a, uh, an onboard server. So th there's a lot of computational power um, to support this prototype. So that also makes me wonder, is it financially going to be feasible as well, right? Because a lot of municipalities have tight budgets and yeah, this is like a really cool proof of concept, but the reality is, you know, you're packing all that gear in there. And certainly if you're enabling it to operate on a 5G network, that could, that could be quite expensive, but it's cool. And, um, you know, I kind of geek out on stuff like that. And uh, I continue to look for, you know, prototypes like that to talk about on our podcast, but let's move to your third and final topic. And I did catch the story as well on three nanometer, but TSMC and Samsung are both talking about it and you want to provide some insights on what you think it could mean for, for 5G. Yeah, so TSMC, I want to say, I think it was last week, um, they talked about um, they talked about their three nanometer process. Um, yeah, so it was about a week ago, maybe two weeks ago now. Yeah. Um, and that was, they, they actually mentioned um, four different process nodes from the three nanometer. And um, they are talking about this thing called nano sheets for, for two nanometer. So the most, the bulk of what they talked about was three nanometer, but they also, you know, tease nano sheets for two nanometer. Um, and that, you know, they talk about FinFlex as being this technology that enables them to have different types of three nanometer processes for different types of applications. But mm -hmm. both companies are talking about, you know, you know, like nearly 50% power reductions and, you know, double digit uh, performance, you know, double digit smaller surface area compared to five nanometer, which isn't what's, which, which isn't what's a lot of products today. Um, and, you know, they're talking about all different types of, you know, uh, complicated technologies uh, using gate all around and multi-bridge channel FETs. It's like, there, there's a lot of technical, um, you know, jargon here, but, but the key is that three nanometer is going to bring considerable improvements in power. Yeah. Um, it's gonna bring considerable improvements in performance and it's gonna help with area. Uh, which means that we're going to see more, you know, integrated 5G modems, most likely. Um, and, you know, we'll probably see a, a discrete uh, three nanometer from Qualcomm in the next year or two, uh, which will eventually become an integrated modem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if Apple isn't going to be able to um, build its own modems quite yet, they're probably going to have to license this from Qualcomm or just buy it from Qualcomm. So, um, you know, Samsung is a, is a, is a smartphone manufacturer. They're also a chip manufacturer and they're a foundry. So, yeah. you know, Samsung's obviously gonna 
give themselves access to the latest and greatest in technology. Um, but what, what is interesting is um, both companies announced very similarly around each other about their three nanometer process. Mm -hmm. And um, three nanometers kind of going to be the, the next frontier um, before we go down to two nanometer or down to angstrom measurements. So uh, it'll be very interesting to see, but uh, generally net positive for everybody. It will probably drive up costs as it always does. Um, but there are some aerial efficiencies that can be gained to reduce those costs. Yeah, and so just, just for our viewers and listeners that are not sort of semiconductor experts like you and um, our founder, Patrick, the benefits, right, are lower power consumption, which means better device battery life, right? What, what are some of the other advantages? So um, you, thermals will also most likely be lower, okay. um, generally because when you lower power, you also improve thermals. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you're also able to choose the lower thermal um, or lower power, you also gain more battery life. So yeah. th there's usually a balance. Usually companies will choose to increase power performance a little bit, but lower power considerably or not lower power at all, just go all full bore on performance. Um, but what's interesting is that Samsung is claiming that they already have um, their three nanometer in production mm -hmm. and that they are ahead of TSMC on that. Um, but the thing is, is that when it comes to these nanometer measurements, um, not everybody's nanometers are necessarily measured the same. Okay. So you have to take it with a bit of a grain of salt, but mm -hmm. uh, I guarantee you there's a lot of comparisons that are gonna be made between Samsung three nanometer and um, TSMC, and even whenever Intel gets there, uh, Intel as well. So yeah. uh, Intel is definitely lagging behind TSMC and Samsung, but Samsung kind of kicked things off today um, by saying that they've got mass production of, of, of their three nanometer already um, in production. Very cool. Well, hey, it's been another great podcast, my friend. Before we sign off, though, I just want to wish our viewers and listeners a very happy 4th of July. And we may be taking a break next week as I uh, travel over to Paris for the LoRaWAN World Expo. But as soon as I'm back, we'll get another uh, podcast recorded. But Ancha, why don't you take us home? Absolutely. Our, we hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If anyone out there would like to provide insights on a specific 5G topic for a future podcast, please reach out to us on social media. Will's at Will Town Tech and I'm at Anshal Sog. We hope you have a great weekend and please tune in again next week.